Today's scripture is Genesis 11, 1 through 9. The whole earth had the same language and vocabulary. As people migrated from the east, they found a valley in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make oven-fired bricks. They used brick for stone and asphalt for mortar. And they said, come, let's build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the sky. Let's make a name for ourselves, otherwise we will be scattered throughout the earth. Then the Lord came down to look over the city and the tower that the humans were building. The Lord said, if they have begun to do this as one people, all having the same language, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let's go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So from there, the Lord scattered them throughout the earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, it is called Babylon, for there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them throughout the earth. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning. As we turn our hearts to hear God's word, let me pray for us as we begin. Father, pray that you would open our hearts and our ears, that we would hear your word. Lord, would you help us to not just hear, but to receive. And in receiving, Lord, would you transform us? Would you help us to hear how you call us to yourself, how you make us in your image, and you restore us? Lord, I pray that um, as we hear these words, we would be comforted and that we would receive the name of Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, as it's been alluded to already in the service, of course, it's the first uh, Sunday of the new year, and usually this is a time for New Year's resolutions. Now, I will not name this person, but there's someone in my family who loves this moment. Uh, the, the most uh, exciting thing that this person can do is take one page of the calendar and rip it off and see there's a brand new month, there's a brand new week, there's a brand new year, a new place to start. And there's a kind of excitement that comes with starting over, right? Uh, it's, a, it's a fresh start. Uh, it's a new beginning. Uh, it's a time where we maybe start thinking about habits that might bring a, a, a better you. Uh, and now these resolutions are just fine. Uh, starting over is, is good. But perhaps we can turn to think uh, about the question, what do we hope to accomplish? Uh, wh what are we hoping for? when we make a resolution and we start a new habit. Uh, can we really make ourselves uh, new again? Can we cover our weakness? Can we transform our failures? Can we make ourselves more intelligent? Can we make ourselves more successful or likable? Now, we just read from Genesis 11 and the Tower of Babel. Uh, and though no one here is probably tempted to build a tower uh, into the heavens, you might be tempted to build a new you. You might be tempted to make a name for yourself. And you see, the story of the tower is really a story not about building a building, but the story is about building a name. In fact, the whole story is about name-making. It's about humanity building a name or building self-worth in order to maximize power, glory, 
for themselves and ultimately all of that in independence from God. The story of the tower exposes the human desire to be somebody, to cover weakness and shame, to control our lives, and frankly, to be independent from God. The story of the tower also reminds us uh, that uh, making a name for ourselves is really just ends in confusion uh, and in failure. So this morning, uh, we will find that the universal temptation to make a name for ourselves only leads to emptiness and to failure. And by exposing our desire to make our own names, God demonstrates mercy. Even though that's a painful thing, we're going to find that this is a merciful thing that God does for us, exposing this desire uh, to make ourselves, to make our own names. And in this God demonstrates his merciful love in adopting us and bringing us into his family and giving us his name. We'll, we'll see this in, in three main points. Number one, we'll look at the tower builders themselves and their attempt to make a name. Uh, second, we'll see how God responds. He acts in judgment against this kind of human name making. And third and finally, we'll see how God rescues his people he gives them a better name. Now, before we start, just maybe a couple of things about Genesis and uh, where chapter 11 fits in the whole book. Genesis 11 sits right on a dividing line in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapters 1 through 11 records the account of creation and the fall uh, and the extended effects of the fall in both the flood and, of course, in the tower. In Genesis 12 through 50, uh, here we find the story of the patriarchs up to the time of Israel and their exile into Egypt. So Genesis 11 is actually in a really crucial place in the uh, book. Uh, it's at this dividing line. Chapters 1 through 11 is this very wide angle lens panning across the cosmic events of creation and fall. And then chapters 12 through 50 is kind of a close-up on the descendants of Abraham, the father of Israel, and how God interacts with them. Sitting in the first half of the book of Genesis, Genesis 11 actually echoes back to the beginning, echoes back to the garden and humanity's attempt to know all things, actually to kind of form an identity, uh, independent of God. Uh, the prideful independence of the tower builders is actually reminiscent of Adam and Eve's ambition for uh, independence in the garden. There are several parallels between uh, the garden and Genesis 11 and the tower. Uh, the setting is the same. So the garden is set between the rivers Tigris and Euphrates. And that's the same area of the plain of Shinar that we read in Genesis 11:2. Also, the conclusion of uh, the garden, Genesis 3, and the conclusion of this story, uh, both ends in judgment, east of Eden, as it were. And also, both of these stories, there's a striking similarity in this kind of independence. Human beings doing it their own way, choosing their own name. So, that parallel between Genesis 11 and Genesis 3. Keep that in mind. So first, the attempt to make a name. If you have your bulletin or your Bible, maybe turn to Genesis 11. I want to look at the first four verses because there we find the problem. Um, here, this, uh, this 
attempt to make a name. Let me read chapter uh, 11, verses 1 and 2. The whole earth had the same language and vocabulary. As people migrated from the east, they found a valley in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. This is the opening scene here in verse 1, and it notes that the whole earth was united by a common language, a common ethnic framework, a common purpose. And later in the story, we're going to find that the coming together on the plain of Shinar was actually a way of preserving this unity. They were afraid. They didn't want to be scattered. So coming together was kind of a defensive measure. And here in the very beginning, though the tower builder's unity and common purpose might initially sound like something positive, they're not. The unity here is a false unity because it's a kind of unity that's already made independent from God's creation and independent from God's purposes. Let me explain. Uh, Both in the garden at creation, Genesis 1, uh, and in the flood, God gave the command to humanity to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and to subdue it. This was God's design and intention for humanity from creation. As image bearers, men and women were to fill the earth. They were created to be rulers within this domain, bearing God's image to all of creation. But at the fall, Uh, Men and women rejected this function and made themselves in their own image, eating from the tree of knowledge. Here in Genesis 11, rather than being fruitful and filling the earth, humanity is making their own name. And instead of going and scattering, they're staying. So do you see this unity that they have is already a unity uh, rejecting God's created order. Just by staying put, they're already rebelling against what God had called them to do and be. So the story opens with the tower builders rejecting God's direction. Rather than filling the earth and scattering, they're staying put. They're rejecting God's order. Look at verses 3 and 4. We see more of this setting. Verse 3, they said to each other, come, let us make oven-fired bricks. They used bricks for some stone and asphalt for mortar. Now, in the version I'm reading, that little last bit is in parentheses. Uh, More information. They used brick for stone and asphalt for mortar. Why on earth this extra information? The the, the author here, uh, Moses, recording this in Genesis, he's giving us a window into the heart of the builders. They're doing it their own way. Notice all that language. Come, let us build. Let us make a name for ourselves. The focus is on what they're doing. And even in this little aside, they used brick instead of stone. Why? Because bricks are man-made. They used asphalt instead of naturally occurring uh, mortar. The, The word there in the Hebrew describes the kind of material that bubbles up in the Dead Sea that you can use for uh, uh, cementing things together. It's a naturally occurring uh, substance. But instead of using that, they used asphalt. Again, something that human beings themselves make. So the story, like woven into the fabric of the story, is the idea of human independence. We're going to do it our way. We're going to use our own uh, man-made elements, even in building this tower. 
The emphasis here, of course, is on human planning, human effort, human accomplishment. This leads us to ask, uh, what were the builders of the tower doing their work for? Verse 4 tells us vividly, verse 4, And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the sky. Let us make a name for ourselves. And notice the fear, otherwise we'll be scattered throughout the earth. They build the tower to make a name for themselves through their own accomplishments. Now, I want you to notice two things here, that that there are two ways that the tower builders uh, can make a name for themselves. And maybe these two ways are also ways that we might be tempted to make a name for ourselves. Uh, First, in the statement, let us build a tower with its top to the sky, this suggests that the builders of the tower thought that they could control God. This is an idol of religion. This is religion as an idol. And you might think, well, wait, how is building a tower a religious activity? Let me try to explain. In the ancient context of Genesis 11, uh, in general, a mountain functioned as a place where heaven and earth meet. This is where people go to be close to God. They go to a top of a mountain. And in the ancient world, people would build buildings or towers. This is actually a ziggurat, an ancient Near East kind of step tower. It looks like a stair step, uh, but it's like a mountain. And the tower builders were building their own mountain, their ziggurat, where they could either ascend to God or make a place where they wanted it to happen, where God could descend to them. This was a blatant attempt at manipulating God's presence and blessing. They're not just trying to connect with God innocently. They were attempting to build their own kingdom in their own way and in their own name. Now, perhaps this morning you're here and you think of yourself as a religious person or you're a Christian. And of course, you don't feel the temptation to build a tower to heaven. Uh, But there is always the temptation to come to God on our own terms. To either earn God's affection or to keep it by what we do. And, And I think our deeply religious impulses encourage this kind of thinking. If I follow the rules... Uh, if I read my Bible, if I change my behavior, if I work for the church, then God will bless my life. Then he will love me. Then he will accept me. The idea here is that coming to God is is in our own power. We might think about this as a kind of self-righteous lifestyle. And here's here's the problem with that way of thinking. Um, If if we think that we are in control, we are the ones that uh, set the agenda of how we uh, approach God. Or we think that it's through this kind of self-righteousness. Here's what happens. We we try to do that and we find out that the the more we work hard trying to please God by what we do, uh, it actually doesn't work. Our, Our lives don't get better. We, we still sin. We, we still are miserable. Uh, we still are broken. And, and the perverse thing about it is as we follow kind of a self-righteous way of living, we try to work hard. We try to please God by what we do. We try to make some kind of religious name for ourselves. Um, and, and then we find that it doesn't work. We become disillusioned. And we actually begin to blame God 
We blame God for our self-righteousness not working. This is a kind of religious name-making, a self-righteousness that seeks to, though we wouldn't put it in the, these terms of manipulating God, we, we think of it as, if I do this, God will give me that. And that's a kind of way of manipulating God. We manipulate him by our self-righteousness, wanting him to give us what we want and when we want it. And this, yeah, this story exposes that kind of thinking. We're not in control like that. So that's one way of name-making, kind of a religious name-making, a kind of self-righteousness. Second, there's another kind of name-making. Their desire to not be scattered throughout the whole earth shows us that they have a desire to have power and security, but that power and security comes from the size and the wealth of their city or the security of their staying together. While the first type of name-making comes from creating an idol of religion, the second kind of name-making comes from making an idol of one's group. Let me explain. This is a kind of snobbery or imperialism or colonialism or racism that comes from thinking my group, my country, my church, my neighborhood is the best. This this is where I find my identity. This is where I find my security. Um, we, we might call this in our kind of cultural moment, maybe even call this out, this is the idol of nationalism. When love for one's people or one's nation isn't just a good thing, it becomes absolute. It's what defines us. When political leaders can do no wrong or when policies or something like American values, bring not only a sense of identity and pride, but they bring a sense of salvation. They bring a sense of, this is, this is me. This is the right thing, and no one else has this right thing. I, I think both of these ways of uh, name-making kind of come up in the story, and either by a religious name-making or kind of a nationalistic name-making, the tower builders attempt to get their identity, to make their name for themselves apart from God. They're seeking salvation on their own terms. And even though, again, it's hard for us to relate to the story, we're, we're not building a tower, we don't live in the ancient Near East, I think there are ways in which we make our names or attempt to or are tempted to make a name for ourselves, especially apart from God. So how does God respond to this? Number two, uh, the God who sees, and it's interesting that the text stresses this idea that God is watching the whole time. He sees all of this. The God who sees, he doesn't just see, he comes and judges the act of human name-making. That's the second idea. Look at verses five through nine. This, this is the turning point of the story. Verse five says this, then the Lord came down to look over the city and the tower that the humans, were, uh, the humans were building. And the Lord said, if they have begun to do this as one people, all having the same language, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. And then the story goes on to tell of God's judgment. 
Uh, notice that this is the turning point in the story because it's where God arrives on the scene. God has always been watching and seeing, but he enters into the action at this point. And notice the parallels between verses 3 and 4, how the tower builders were saying, come, let us make, come, let us build. Verse 7 uh, says, God himself says, come, let us go down. Uh, it's, it's, it's the parallelism that almost it, mockingly God is saying, okay, human beings, you, you want to do it yourself? Um, I, I'm going to come and expose the kind of thinking and the kind of acting and how wrong it is. The tower builders here attempt to manipulate God's presence by building the tower, but ironically, God comes down on his own terms. This, this might be an irony that we feel in our own lives where we try to do something, we try to have control over our lives, and, and God in his grace uh, reveals this, uh, this kind of attitude uh, and he brings uh, into our lives what he wants instead of what we want. So here it's kind of ironic that, that these people want to manipulate God's presence. They want him to come down, uh, and God, in fact, does come down, but he comes down in judgment. And we see the two ways that God judges. First is in confusing and then in scattering. This is the way that God judges. Uh, first, God attacks the problem of this misplaced center. Human beings regard themselves as the measure of all things. Uh, they feel, we feel, that we can control our world and maybe manipulate God uh, by our actions. And here in response, God dismantles this false sense of unity, this false sense of being in control by confusing their, their language. Uh, a second way that God judges is by scattering. And I want you to see that in this judgment, in the judgment of scattering, God actually accomplishes his original creation design to be fruitful and fill the earth. Here, God's judgment isn't just punitive. In other words, it's not just exacting punishment uh, against you know, something that uh, the people have done, but it's also remedial. It brings correction the tower builders feared the scattering because to them it meant insignificance. To them it signaled a loss of control, forfeiting a name for themselves. But ironically, it's exactly what they need. And it's exactly what then fulfills God's purpose. So here in judgment, I don't want us just to see that God comes and you know, in an angry fashion, you know, judges the world. But in God's judgment, there's restoration. In God's judgment, there is fullness that comes. And in fact, though the tower builders can't see it, the very thing that they want, the very thing that they need, comes about through God's judgment. Just a couple more comments here. The tower builders ultimately wanted a name. They wanted to belong. They wanted to have unity. They wanted to be a part of a family, to have security. However, they tried to get this on their own terms, and they ended up confused and scattered. They ended up east of Eden. So how is it that God's judgment results in this better name? So the third point here is that God rescues his people by giving them a better name. Though the tower builders went about it the wrong way, I want you to see that they actually desired the right thing. They desired a name, a place in God's family. They desired to belong. 
And there are actually several clues here in Genesis 10, 11, and 12 that receiving a name is, is what is all what these texts are all about. Um, if you look in chapter 10, uh, there's a long list, a genealogy, a list of names, and that's the passage right before chapter 11. Uh, at the end of chapter 11, right after the story of the Tower of Babel, uh, chapter 11, verse 10 says this, these are the family records of Shem, and it goes on to, to tell us a genealogy of the family of Shem which again is another list of names. I hope that's appearing to you as kind of obvious. There's a list of names before this passage. There's a list of names after this passage. Interestingly enough, the man who is named Shem, his name means name. <laughs> so those are all clues that somehow having a name, being related to a family, belonging, that's what is going on in this passage. In fact, there's more of this idea of name in Genesis chapter 12, the chapter that comes right after 11. And I, as I said at the beginning, this is a, a, a kind of a, a point at which Genesis shifts from this wide angle view of creation and fall to the family of Abraham and God's act of redemption. Let me read Genesis 12 verses 1 through 3. And I Listen for the part of, uh, where name comes up. Genesis 12, 1. The Lord said to Abram, go out from your land, your relatives and your father's house. That's a kind of scattering. To the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. Did you hear that part? God is going to bless Abraham. God gives him a name. God makes Abraham's name great. The very thing that the tower builders wanted, Abraham gets. Why? Well, at the beginning, Abraham is willing to go. Abraham is willing to scatter, as it were. Abraham does it God's way. God, he follows God's intentions, his will. And in doing that, God himself gives Abraham a name. In fact, the rest of Genesis is the story of how God fulfills his promise to Abraham unconditionally. And also how those promises uh, are a way of restoring what was lost in Eden of course, from our vantage point, we can see that this isn't just the theme of Genesis, but it's the theme of the rest of the whole Bible. God is recreating the world that was lost in the garden by creating a new people for himself, a new family. He calls out this new family by his grace, and he gives them a new name. But God recreates the world through an ultimate son, uh, a son of promise, one who is born of Mary, one who is born king. In fact, Paul says in Galatians 3.16, he says, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say and to seeds as though referring to many, but as referring to one, to your seed, who is Christ. 
And also again in Philippians, Paul says that God gave to the seed a name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God has given Jesus the greatest name so that we might find our name in him. Jesus on the cross made himself of no reputation, gave up all of his power so that we could have his name put on us and that we might rule with him. How do we respond? God gives us his name in, in Jesus. And, and we might call this uh, adoption. In fact, this is a, an idea that Paul then talks about in the New Testament, that we have been adopted into God's family. And by being adopted, we are given a name. And we're given a new name. Though we are orphaned by our rebellion of our own name-making, God adopts us and makes us his own by the work of Christ. The, the image of adoption here is, is really powerful because in the image of adoption, it tells us that our relationship with God is based completely on a legal act that is accomplished by the Father. You don't win a father's affection. You don't negotiate for a parent. Th think about that for just a moment, as, especially as we're thinking about this kind of self-righteous, religious uh, idolatry in tower building or name making. We don't negotiate for a parent. We don't win a father. Adoption is a legal act on the part of the father who chooses us. It's expensive. It's costly. But there's no sense in which we win or earn the status. It's given to us. It's simply received. Uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism describes adoption in this way. Adoption is an act of God's free grace whereby we are received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. We're received into the number. We are granted privileges of being children of God. This means that we enjoy the liberties, the privileges of being God's children that we have his name put on us. We receive the spirit of adoption. We have access to the throne of grace with boldness. We are enabled to cry, Abba, Father. We are protected, provided for, and even disciplined by God as Father. We're never cast off. We're sealed into the day of redemption and will inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation from God. All that is kind of the language of Westminster describing what it means to be adopted. Maybe today for us, the problem of the tower is, is this. So I kind of close with this idea. Uh, maybe our problem or our, our, our challenge is that we struggle to believe that God actually loves us on the basis of what Christ has done, Christ's life, his death, his resurrection. Now, I think we probably, you know, many of us that would consider ourselves Christians, we, we actually believe this. This is something that we hear and, and we agree with. Um, but, but the problem really here is that this confession, this teaching, God loves us and what Jesus has done, 
it's not functional. In other words, there's like this distinction between confessional trust, what I confess, what I say, I believe, and then functionally, how I live. Uh, the day-to-day, hour-to-hour uh, functioning of what I believe. Uh, the, the problem is that functionally, we often slip away from the idea that we are loved and we are given a new name, we are adopted in God's family, and we slip into this kind of, well, but it really should cost me something, right? I really have to do something. It can't be that easy. We slip into that kind of thinking. And so our tower-like response is either, one, to try to clear our conscience uh, by blaming other people for our failures. This is kind of a group righteousness or that nationalism that I talked about before. Um, we focus on how our group or our church or our neighborhood or our country or something is better than others. That's one way to respond. Or I think more often, we turn on the afterburners. We make ourselves busy with work and duty. Um, I look to my outward activity to feel good about myself. And I judge others by my own self-righteous standards. This is that kind of self-righteousness. This type of Name-making has particular application for those of us, as I said, who call ourselves Christians. It's a kind of pride and self-righteousness that we see example, uh, in the example of the older son in Jesus' parable, the prodigal son. Tim Keller describes the older son uh, in that parable this way. He says, pride in his good deeds rather than remorse over his bad deeds was keeping the older son out of the feast of salvation. The, older's brother, the older brother's problem is his self-righteousness, the way he uses his moral record to put God and others in his debt, to control them and to get them to do what he wants. His spiritual problem is his radical insecurity that comes from basing his self-image or his name on achievements and performance so that he endlessly must prop up his sense of Righteousness by putting others down and finding fault. As one of my, this is Tim Keller, uh, as one of my teachers in seminary put it, the main barrier between Pharisees and God is not their sins, but their damnable good works. What, was, what must we do then to be saved? To find God, we must repent of the things that we have done wrong. But if that's all that you do, you may remain just an elder brother. To truly become Christians, we must also repent of the reasons we ever did anything right. Pharisees not only repent of their sins, or sorry, Pharisees only repent of their sins, but Christians repent for the very roots of their righteousness too. We must learn how to repent of the sin under all the other sins and, all, uh, and under all of our righteousness as well, the sin of seeking to be our own Savior and our own Lord. Here, this is the message of the tower. Uh, it exposes this kind of self-righteousness, this way of making our own name. So what is the gospel message? The gospel message is come, confess, and rest. There's already a beautiful name. There's already a wonderful name. There's already a powerful name. The name of Jesus that has been given to you. And in faith... We are made sons and daughters. We're made adopted children of God. It's, it's in that life, it's in that reality 
uh, that we need to live. Let me, let me close with just the, the words of Paul from Romans 8, verse 14. He says, For all those led by God's Spirit are God's sons. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that it's by your grace that you have adopted us into your family, that you have given us the spirit of adoption and allow us to say, Abba, Father. Lord, I pray that these words that have been spoken, uh, that they would fall to the ground, but what would be remembered is your word and the call to see you as a beautiful Savior, as a wonderful and powerful Savior. Help us, Lord, to receive your name, to let go of this kind of self-righteous name-making. Lord, as we think about a new year and we think about um, resolutions, we think about hope that we have for a better uh, year, 2022, uh, Lord, help us to begin with and remain in this posture as children who receive, who accept, and who rest on Christ alone. Lord, help us to do this. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.